I hope you have uh, been able to join us the past few weeks as we have jumped into the book of Isaiah. I've really um, enjoyed doing this deep dive. It's actually the first time I've ever, uh, through a through a sermon series, had the opportunity to really dig into the book of um, Isaiah. I've done a few kind of uh, short little spurts through it over my time just growing up in church, uh, a lot of times kind of leading up into Advent, looking at the prophecies that are pointing to Jesus. But I've really enjoyed this deep dive into some of those, but also continuing on, especially focusing in on what the prophet Isaiah had to say during um, Israel's uh, time in exile and what those prophecies um, say to not only the people of Israel, but also to us here today. So uh, just a refresh of kind of where we were last week. So we kind of finished off right at the beginning of chapter 43, going through the first seven verses, um, looking the past couple of weeks at who uh, this servant of the Lord is, ultimately pointing to the ultimate suffering servant of Jesus, but then looking at these lowercase s servants who are described uh, as deaf and blind, uh, uh, purposely so, uh, spiritually not in tune with the work of the Lord in relation to their behavior. Even if they saw it, even if they heard it, they were not acting like they saw and heard and experienced the work of God and his provision. And that's easy for us to look back and say, that just happened. But oftentimes we are in the same situation. And I love how we ended last week in those final or in those uh, first seven verses of chapter 43, where we see the people referred to after being referred to as blind and d deaf, we, we uh, finished with a little more encouraging word where we hear that um, we are reminded that the Lord, while he poured out discipline, he also calls us precious. He also calls us his own. He also calls us by name. And so for the creator of everything to call us those things gives us value that we cannot gain in and of ourselves. There is no way for us to gain that kind of value in and of ourselves. There's a um, musical artist, um, her name is Ellie Holcomb, and she has this album called Sing. It's a lot of kids' uh, uh, songs written for kids that point them to, to Scripture about creation mostly, but most of her songs are straight from Scripture. And so there's one of her songs where she kind of sings through these first seven verses. It's kind of um, um, upbeat. It's very uh, singable. And so I had the great idea. I was going to be this super theologically rich parent in the car. And I said, let's listen to it. It's going to be so great. It kind of fits the vibe of a lot of the songs that AJ, our four-year-old, listens to. And so it will be a great option. And um, like many of you in the room who are parents or who have ever had an idea that you thought would be really good and received with open arms and you did it and all of a sudden she said turn it off I don't like that song that's a terrible song and I was like oh my gosh there's so much biblical truth here how could you not appreciate it what are you for come on and so 
And so in that moment, I didn't have the opportunity to share it with her. I think it's a great song. So just so that y'all know, the Gibsons are uh, 50-50 on it right now. So if you want to go home and break the tie, it's a great song. It really unpacks those first seven verses really, really well. And so God refers to his people as precious. And in this, and in this, and in this context of God referring to his people in this way, we enter into our passage today, which will be chapter 43, verse 8, all the way through 44, verse 5. So it's a lot of uh, uh, verses here. We're not going to read every single one, but we will be hopping around quite a, quite a bit here. This first little uh, chunk are verses 8 through 13, and I, we enter into this courtroom drama of a scene. I don't know how many of you are law um, and order people. You've had about 30 years to either do it or not, so um, if you're not, it's probably not happening. And so, but there's a lot of dramas out there that kind of capture um, what we would imagine a courtroom to be like. There's probably um, attorneys in the room who are like, that is not how it is at all, and that's fine. Please don't ruin it for me. But I loved reading this passage where you get this drama of the Lord is the defendant on trial in these verses. And for us, that's kind of um, intimidating to think about because um, he's God. And so he says in verse 8 here, he says, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. Let all the nations gather together. Let the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant who I have chosen, that you may believe, that you may know and believe in me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? And so we have God setting up this courtroom drama scene where he is the defendant on the prosecuting side. He calls the nations, right, who are um, against his people, but also the deaf and the blind who, who are not seeing um, God and who are following after these idols. And then as witnesses to support him, he invites his people to serve as witnesses, which once again, deaf and blind. Not very good eyewitnesses, right? So God is setting up a very interesting picture here. He's also the judge. He is also not under any threat of actual prosecution here, right? Because the people who are coming against him are using hollow idols who cannot speak for themselves because they are totally dependent on their creators. They cannot do anything in and of their own power. Of course, they cannot defend themselves. There's no fruit to point to because they have no power in and of themselves. Everybody is invited. They can call their witnesses for their little created idols because they're pieces of wood and metal formed into shapes by people who were actually formed by the one true God who is putting himself in the position of the defendant and he will win every single time because they cannot stand against him. 
And what's interesting is in verses 11 and 12, when we as his witnesses, in this case, again, bring forth the deaf and the blind, that's us, coming forth as his witnesses, we are unable really to testify on behalf adequately. And so we see in verses 11 and 12, by, by default, he speaks on behalf of us. And he says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. God does the work, and we are just witness to it. Witness, just meaning the recorder or the reporter of the work. And when we are inadequate to actually report it, he can speak for us. God has all the power here. God has all the power. And in many ways, simply our existence as believers in the, and, and the presence of God's grace and God's mercy in our lives that allows us to receive that grace and that mercy is all that we bring to the table, and we didn't even bring it. God gave it to us freely. God completely reveals himself to us in this way. He doesn't hold anything back. He declares with his mouth who we are. He saves us, and he shows himself to the world, and all we're doing is keeping record and reporting it as his witnesses. The other gods can't can't do that, again, because they're totally dependent on the people that have created them. So this wild courtroom scene where God is both the judge, the defendant, and speaking on behalf of his witnesses is just a picture of God's ultimate power and authority, and he transcends everything. He is preeminent. He is all-powerful. He is the one true God. And so this idea that God could even be on a level enough playing field with anybody in a courtroom to even make it worth arguing is almost laughable, which makes verse 13 make a ton of sense. Who could turn back the works of God, right? Who could do it, right? Nobody, because nobody even comes close. We see him refer to us as his witnesses in both verses 10 and 12. And I usually figure when the creator of the universe repeats himself, we should pay a little bit of um, attention to what he has to say. And so he does refer to us as his witnesses. And it is probably amazing for the people both in Isaiah's time, both Isaiah and the people hearing it, It's amazing for them to hear these things from the creator, hearing those things in verses 1 through 7, and then hearing that we are his chosen witnesses, that he chooses us in spite of us not bringing anything to the table of any value. He still chooses us. But what's even cooler for us is we're on this side of the cross where we heard Jesus say the exact same thing to his disciples before he ascended, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So we get to hear them both. But it's ultimately pointing to the witness that we will be for the only way that we can truly be saved. And so let's kind of unpack a little bit of what witnessing looks like for a lot of us when we are not careful. When we do it in our own strength and in our own flesh, this will be a little bit of a confessional time. I have been guilty of saying, well, I'll just live my witness, right? Right? Not bad advice, right? 
But a lot of times when we say it, what is it? It's an excuse for us to step to the back and maybe let the extroverts or the professional Christians do all of the talking, right? Maybe the people with the powerful testimonies, we'll let them share, I'll be in the back, live in my testimony, right? I'll live my witness. While living our witness is part of it, it is so much more. We don't want to say one thing and then have somebody point to our life and see the complete opposite. So living our witness is definitely something that we would like to do. Just be careful as you live your witness that you are not simply sliding to the back of the group. Because the thing is, is if our life has been transformed by the power of Christ, you have been brought from death to life, you are now, you are now a fully completed evidence to the transforming work of Jesus Christ. You are evidence to his transforming power. It's not something that we do. It's an identity statement of who we are. It, it takes you from let me tell you about redemption to God redeemed me and called me by name. To not bear witness about who you are is less of a, I didn't check my box of evangelism today, and it is more of a full-on identity crisis. If we don't know who we are, then we cannot be an effective witness. If we do know who we are, then we cannot help but witness because of the work that Christ has done in us. And another thing, God really doesn't even need us to bear witness. His preeminence, his inescapable grace, his power speaks for itself. It's already revealed itself fully in how God has revealed himself to us. Remember this verse 11, God did all of the work already. He did the work for us. We are his witnesses and who can turn that back? So a question that we can ask ourselves as we look at our role as witnesses is, are you actually able to bear witness to the work and the power of Jesus? Has your, has your heart been transformed from stone to flesh? One uh, commentator, one, one, one scholar says, uh, it is grimly sad that people who worship false gods and no gods often rise above what their religion inspires. But the people of God often live below their dignity and failed the God who has illuminated them. And so another question asked would be is, are the people of God outdoing the world in what we bear witness to? Are we outdoing the world in witness to life transformation? And the upside is, we're not done with that question. So if you felt like your toes got stepped on there like I did, it's okay. We're not done yet. Thank goodness that we don't come to the end of it here. We would leave on a pretty big downer. Let's look at verses 14 through 21 where we see a promise of deliverance in spite of their present reality. We see the people of Israel receive this promise of d d d d deliverance. They're in exile, but they receive this promise of deliverance in spite of where they find themselves in, cap in, cap in captivity. Verses 14 and 15 begins with this deeply personal language. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, 
the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and I bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships they, in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King, your Redeemer, your Lord, your Holy One, your King. We read verses 16 and 17, and it says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. This is a callback to, to, uh, to the Exodus, right? We see him parting the Red Sea. We see the armies of Pharaoh swallowed by the water. They are quenched like a wick. They cannot rise. They are defeated. They are gone. They are totally delivered. The people of Israel are totally delivered from this enemy. And it would be easy for them to say, all right, we need something like that. Let's bring out the playbook. Let's get, this, let's get everything that works. We're being held captive again. Let's get Babylon into the biggest body of water that we can find, right? Let's get, let's get moving here. God, we've seen you do it. Do it again. And they're being called back and they're being told to remember these things because they've forgotten and they start acting like God has never worked in those ways before. In fact, in verse 18, it says, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. So they need to remember it so that they know who God is and they know where they stand in relation to God and they have this foundation of faith looking at how God has worked in the past. But then at the same time, in verse 18, we hear, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Is this a contradiction? No, it's not. It is a remember the past, learn from the past, take these things and treasure it, but just know God is doing a new thing in verse 19. Behold, I am doing a new thing, and now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? For any of you who have been following Jesus for any length of time, you have seen at least the finished work of uh, Jesus in your life, bringing you from death to life. That is transformative in and of itself. But a lot of times, the more that you follow Jesus, you see these mighty works, you see God work, and in our flesh, if we aren't careful, we can dwell on that and be so focused on how God has worked in the past that we're missing how God is working in our lives in the present and in the future. It does not take away the power of what happened in the past, but God is telling his people, I am doing a new thing, and you do not even perceive it. And so it doesn't change who God is. God is not changing who he is. God is not changing anything about his character. But if you read the entire body of scripture, we don't see God over and over again doing the same things. We see him doing a lot of the same things for the same reasons, but his methods are constantly changing. He is creative. He is creator. So of course, he would have the ability to change how he works, the method of how he works. And so over 2,000 years of church history and then a couple thousand years before that, we see God being creative in how and where and when he works. And so what he points to here as this new work that he is doing, he says, behold, I am doing a new thing in verse 19. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Wild beasts will honor me and the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. Not only does he say, don't remember those things, 
He's actually describing a method of working that is the total opposite of the way he worked before, right? Before it was putting all the enemies into the water, right? Now it is I'm creating water where it is dry, right? Before it was creating dry land in the middle of this sea. Now I will make water where it is dry. I will make a path in the wilderness, which is pointing ultimately to Jesus, pointing ultimately to this living water. Jesus declares himself as the living water in John chapter 7 and 8, where he comes out at the festival of booths, and where, which is a festival that celebrates God providing water for his people when they were in the wilderness. He is declaring himself as it, the living water. If anyone should thirst, come to me. He is the water in the desert. He is the path in the wilderness. God is doing a new thing. It won't look like what he did, but it will be equally or greater in its magnitude. And so not only do we see God looking ahead at the work that he will do, we also see God again talking about who he says that we are. So he will Give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Give drink to his chosen people. And then in verse 21, he says, The people who I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. The grace, the mercy, everything that we receive from God is not for our benefit. It is for the glory of God. Because the, the glory of God is better than anything that we could do or receive for ourselves anyway. And God is doing that for us. But the word I want to key in on is the people who I formed for myself. This image, this word of formed is a, is a pottery um, image. This is God forming us by hand with care, tenderness, and love as a creation, as something he has put creative energy into. This love, this, this devotion from a creator for his created who constantly are turning their backs on him. And so this promise of deliverance that he has doesn't come without the reality of their present suffering, right? This promise is hundreds and hundreds of years away while they are in Babylon. Verses 22 and 23 talk about this present suffering. It says, yet you, you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. You have not, I have not burdened you with offerings or weary you with, with, with frankincense. Could be a little bit confusing to read at first because obviously if you've spent any time in Leviticus, which Taylor very rightly said is where a lot of Bible reading plans go to die, right? It's where our resolve tends to start to slip. If, if, if you look at the law, he, he did command them to do a lot of these offerings, of these uh, 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 burning incense. All of those things were commanded by God. So he's not saying, don't do what I commanded you to do. He's saying, you did not call on me. You did not bring me your burnt offerings or your sheep or your incense. You didn't bring those things for me. You were doing these things out of religious ritual. You were getting so bogged down in the tasks and in the duties and in everything around the thing that I created for you to have a relationship with me. You were getting so bogged down in all of these things. You have wearied yourself, and thus you have wearied me with 
compounding your sin. You have now added to the, to the sin that you were making the offerings for by doing it in the wrong way. By getting so ritualistic in how you were exercising it, you were compounding these things. I did not burden you with offerings or weary you with frankincense, God says. I did not burden you with ritual. I created a way for you to have a relationship with me. And his people twisted it. The sacrifices were meant to draw a people who had separated themselves from God with their sin. It was meant to draw them to, to himself. It was meant to draw them back to their creator. Their rituals were done with sinful hearts and thus just added insult to injury. One commentator observes that they had ritual without moral or spiritual commitment, which neither satisfied God nor blessed his people. They settled for the softer, more exciting option of religious, of religious fervor over a religious reality. They settled for an exciting option of religious fervor. They were excited about doing all the things around it, that they lost the heart. They lost authentic communion with God. God didn't need the animals. He doesn't need the incense. He gave that to his people as a symbol of a relationship change. God does not need or want empty religious activity, right? God does not need or want your empty religious activity or empty spiritual disciplines. Now, are those a primary method to how God has created us to live in community with each other, to, to regularly live in community with the bride of Christ, to commune with him? Absolutely. He has created those things for that reason. He has not created those things to be empty things that we check off on our list of things to do. We don't need to do it for the sake of doing it. We do it to commune with the Father. We've, we finish chapter 43. Once again, a little bit of a heavy uh, chapter with a little bit of a heavy uh, period at the end of the sentence. Verse 28 says, Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. So a lot of negative things leading to a negative consequence here, which is why we're also not ending the sermon right there either. That's why we're going into chapter 44. That was their present reality. Their present reality was that they had created a situation for themselves that ended with destruction. But that was not the final word. The first three words of chapter 44 say, but now here, which communicates, but that is not the last thing. That does not settle it. I have the final word. And so we're going to wrap up this passage by looking at those first few verses in chapter 44, and we'll look at what this new thing is that God is doing. He says in verse 1 of chapter 44, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by the flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. 
and another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. God is not in the business of being a predictable genie in a bottle, know what the response is, I put this in, that affects God's decision, I get a predictable outcome. We don't see a lot of God being predictable to his people throughout scripture. We see a pattern of God's character, right? But God is bigger than us, and thank goodness he is. He has a bigger plan. He operates outside of our cosmic pattern. The idols that have been created that these people in Israel are turning to are within their world. God is above all of those things, and thank goodness for it. So we don't see new character traits from from God as we grow in him. If you've been in Christ for a while, you have probably deepened in and hopefully deepened in your understanding of who God is and what he says about you and your purpose for his his purpose for your life, which is ultimately to bring glory to him. But the cool thing about sanctification is that gets deeper and deeper the more time that we spend with him. And so while God is constant, God is unchanging, God is not predictable. The depth and the layers of his love and his plan for our lives is something that we're just constantly seeing revealed to us in a new way. And he gives us new aspects to focus on in his word, to meditate on. He gives us the gift of his word to deepen in our relationship with him. Those first three words, but now here, it's not finished yet. That destruction that you have been heading towards because of your sin, because of turning your back on me, is not the end of the story. This act of redeeming his people to himself, he is just as holy as he redeems his people to himself as he is in verse 28 when he says he will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction. God's holiness is not changing based on the emotional feeling we get with what he says. God's holiness is constant. And that's why we can read receiving judgment or receiving uh, this redeeming love from him This is why we can read his uh, burning anger in chapter 42, verse 25, but also read that we are molded and formed carefully and lovingly by him in in chapter 43, verse, verse 21. God is bigger than our constraints that we can put on him. His holiness is not dependent on our response to him. And so this new thing that God is working to do in your life, to draw you to himself, this work that, he, that Isaiah is pointing to, that he is pointing the people to, this saving work of Jesus Christ when he came and lived a perfect life that we could not live on our behalf, is because we had no other hope in life or death than Jesus' blood that covered all of our all of our sins. And we have the opportunity to either lean into the work that God is doing in our life or have an identity crisis and act like God has not done this work in our life. 
So what are we going to do today? That's always a good question. It's always a good thing to leave with is what am I going to do with what God has revealed to me through his word? So I guess an easy question to leave it with would be, are you going to let God do a new work in your life? Maybe, you're a, maybe you are a follower of Jesus in this room and you've seen God work in some amazing ways, but maybe a hurt or maybe something that was really great in your past, you are dwelling on that and that is clouding you from being able to see what God is doing in your present. The enemy would love to use God's work in our lives to distract us from a future work in God's, in our lives. He would love to use something amazing like God's work in our, in our, in our, in our family or our, or our church or use something good for his own purposes. The enemy is not creative. He doesn't come up with a lot of things on his own, but he is crafty. He can twist. And when we can stand firm on the word of God, when we can look at the undiluted word of God and lean and put our foundation on his truth, it doesn't matter what circumstances might be blocking us from seeing God working. His word will reveal himself to us. Jesus promised when he says that we'll be his witnesses that we'd only do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. This capital H helper that would come would bring things to remembrance at the proper time. This capital H helper, this spirit that comes upon people who follow Jesus is a promise that he makes to come alongside us. And maybe you're looking at your life and as you're looking at this transformation and you're looking at rivers in the desert and you're looking at how God has worked, your life is looking more like a desert than a place where rivers and streams run fully. Maybe, maybe all of this hope and all of these things that you have been able to put your, put your faith in have fallen short because they are not Jesus. Maybe the Holy Spirit is pointing you to himself today through what we have read. We'd love to talk to you um, um, about that. Whether you're a follower of Jesus and the Spirit is working in your life and revealing more of himself to you through the reading of his word today, or whether you are not in Christ and the Spirit is still pointing you to himself, that is the beauty of us getting to dig into this together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for who you say we are in spite of everything that we have done. We thank you that you love us, that you call us precious, that you formed us in our mother's womb. God, that you are bigger, that you are stronger than anything that we may face, that all of the empty things that we might put our faith and our trust in have no comparison to you. And so, Lord, I lift up every person in this room who might be coming in with a weight that comes from not surrendering to you. God, whether, it's a, whether it is a sin struggle, God, whether it is a hurt or a hardship that they're going through in their life, maybe it's a sickness uh, with themselves or their family. God, we're all coming in here with burdens that you are waiting for us to place on yourself. And so, God, I pray that as we have an opportunity to respond to the reading of your word, God, I pray that we would lean into the new thing that you are wanting to do 
in all of us through your son, Jesus, through your word, through the truth that we can learn more about you. We love you and we praise you. We pray all these things in your, in your, in your son's name. Um, amen.